0: Hi, everyone. Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com.
1: Hey everyone, Helen Molesworth here. I hope you've been enjoying these more casual conversations with friends. This is the last one before we take a break for the holidays. Don't worry, we'll be back with new episodes in January. If you're like me and grew up with magazine culture, perhaps you love a best of list. I know they are never comprehensive or fair, but they are a way of marking time and recirculating ideas. What can I say? I love making them, I love reading them. And I also really like being included in them. Now that the year is almost over, I called my dear friend Steve Locke so we could give you all a rundown of some of our favorite exhibitions and books of 2022. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Steve Locke.
0: Hi, Helen Molesworth. It's nice to be on the line with you. You're
1: on the line. So um, I grew up reading magazines. I love magazine culture. I love questionnaires and best of lists.
0: Do you do questionnaire in Cosmopolitan?
1: Well, I haven't done it in a long time, but I used to do them. I
0: used to do that quiz every month because I was a monthly Cosmo reader and I never figured out how to get a man. It never helped. It never helped. But I did it every month, though, pretty religiously.
1: That's that's awesome. I was a religious reader of Vogue, not Cosmo. But, um, uh, yeah, I love magazine culture. I love best of lists. So I thought it might be fun to round out this crazy 2022 with a little good cheer about some of the things we really loved this year. A little top 10. That's great. So, yeah. Let's
0: just talk about the things we like. Let's not talk about anything that we don't like, because that's a that's a kind of waste of energy to do that.
1: I agree. And, you know, I actually also think it's harder to talk about the things you like and say why you like them than it is to say why you don't like things, which I always find relatively easy to do. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So who's on your list of um, people that you think made great, great things this year?
0: Well, some of the people are people with whom I'm very close. And, um, the first, the first one I want to say is, uh, my friend, Craig Drennan, who is a terrific painter and, uh, I met him at Skowhegan in 2006. He had his first sort of big New York show that's up right now at and volume. And he asked me to write the catalog, essay for it. And Helen, the paintings are just beyond what you think painting can do.
1: In what way? The, I didn't see the show. Well, the work, first
0: of all, when you look at those paintings, you have to remember that everything is painted. Like every single mm. thing that you're looking at is painted. And so he has taken still life painting to this level close to and beyond the Arnolfini wedding, that level of uh, God sees everything kind of realism. But he's also yeah. married it to this sort of idea about things that are in Spiritus Monday things that are in the zeitgeist right now, and the paintings that give you the sense of being a young person in an environment, listening to songs on the jukebox and having enough money or quarters to put in the jukebox, because that's the only way you could get access to contemporary culture, you know? Mm. The, and, uh, and there's something, the paintings talk about, loretta lynn and that single the pill or um mm-hmm. the song convoy like and so like by imaging these things at such a heightened level of realism Drennan actually pulls you back into that time and it, it it's hard because when you see the paintings in reproduction you think oh you know they're cut and paste or they're Photoshop or they're whatever but they really are this sort of tour through the possibilities that are pregnant in oil paint going mm-hmm. from everything to a sort of nemesis of a wall clock painted as if it's a reflection in an orb or painting money so real that it casts a shadow it, it, that level of um, investigation that i find so interesting in this moment where we are so immediately drawn to internet-based images or, or images that are um, are produced through video gaming and things like that. But to take that imagery from the world and to, to reproduce it at such a high level, and then to reproduce the sort of ideas about gestural abstraction at the same level, Helen.
1: Mm. So it's
0: not just like, oh, he's a really good mimetic painter. It's like he putting on these different characters and painting as if he's that kind of painter. So he's painting as if he's a hyperrealist. realist He's painting mm-hmm. as if he's a gestural abstractionist. He's painting as if he's a, a materialist. And the, the show is just, it was such an honor to see the work and to write about it, that it really, it has stayed with me for a long time. That's my oh, number wow. one.
1: That sounds great. That sounds great. What's your number one? My number one is a toss-up between two painters, two great retrospectives I saw this year. One was the Marlene Dumas show at the Palazzo Grazzi in Venice, which was just extraordinary. Um, It's an incredible venue, you know, three stories with a central courtyard, so all these extreme sight lines across a big volume of space, and you kind of walk around in this circular pattern. Caroline Bourgeois was the curator, and she worked clearly very closely with Dumas. And, I mean, I found myself actually quite physically moved and shattered, I mean, brought to tears at one point um, after watching Dumas kind of go through, you know, those early paintings we know of the body under extraordinary distress and pressure, um, understanding that she came out of apartheid South Africa and and the kind of view of the world it gave her a very gimlet eyed understanding of power and how it works and how it works by, um, enacting pressure on individual bodies and how that collectively keeps the rest of us in check. I mean, she's been really remarkable in her pursuit of that central truth about who we are as human beings, and then of course it moved through her portraits and her um, her investigation of you know the ideas of you know who is a great man, who is a per- persecuted man, but there was one painting more recently, uh, and it was a painting of an old woman crying was the title of it, but the figure almost is commensurate with its material, by which I mean the figure barely coheres. What you're seeing is paint desperately grabbing at the threads of the canvas to try and preserve some kind of embodiment of an older woman. And what's really happening is the body is just sort of giving way, giving way to its softness, giving way to its age, giving way to its um its powerlessness giving way to its re- it's its ultimate destiny as residue um giving way to the truth giving way to the truth of what it means to be an older woman in a culture that has no in western culture european and american culture that has really no place no secure place for what it is that an older woman is and what it is that she might know. And I just found Dumas' capacity to treat the canvas like a mirror in as much as that she looks in it and sees herself unflinchingly. I just, I was blown away, man. Just blown away by it. And then I just want to give the shout out to the second show because I couldn't pick between them if I had to, which is a Bob Thompson show that I saw at the Hammer it was it originated at Colby uh, College. And, you know, Thompson is just one of these artists, you know, he dies very young. Yeah. Um, Thelma Golden did a very important show of Thompson at the Whitney in the late 90s. And this is the the now the next time there's been a great big show. I I if I ruled the art world, there'd be a major Bob Thompson show every five years so that every generation could see him twice while they were forming in formation, because His capacity to um, jettison the figure for the sake of a shape, to jettison black and white for the sake of color, uh, and to play a kind of synesthetic game with painting in which music is omnipotently present. Man, I just don't even know how he did it, but I found every room of the exhibition at the Hammer completely riveting even though it wasn't hung chronologically which i am a stickler for i love a chronological hang yeah i know I um, know. but that's just me being old-fashioned but even though it wasn't chronological i was still just gobsmacked in every room so uh it looks like three painters make the top of our it's kind of incredible
0: list. isn't it and i think mm-hmm. all three of them you know at different points in their careers different points in their lives and we have them all right now and so I think that among the three of them, you're saying something really important about this current moment. Thompson, who is deeply um, resonant right now, idea of shape that you so yeah. put forward, this notion that in Thompson's paintings, you get the sense of seeing someone at a distance and recognizing them by their shape. You know? Yes. Which is really what it means to be in love. That's what it means to Mm. love someone is to be able to recognize them in a crowded field of color. You can recognize them by their shape. And that notion that in Duma where things are just barely holding on and in Drennan, the notion that if I can make it real enough, if I can make you believe it enough, it might actually be true, right? Right. And there's a sort of desperation in, um, in Duma and Drennan that I think is a big part of the current moment. The notion that you, you don't have anything like you and I have had this conversation before, like growing up working class kids, you got nothing and all you had was your wits. And all I had was my, my paintbrush. Right. And I have to make a way out of no way. And I think that, you know, Drennan growing up in West Virginia, you know, his only access to culture being the jukebox or the radio. Right. And, you know, being a white kid in West Virginia and asking someone about Prince, you know, that could be a very fraught conversation. You You bet. So that notion that if I can paint it, if I can realize it at the force of reality, my um, intuition about these forms may be the way out. And Dumas, I think
1: Thompson has a lot of that too.
0: The thing, Helen, that I say this to students all the time: it really can't be taught. It has to come from somewhere deep inside of you as a thinker. I'm going to image it this way. Right. I have this relationship with this material, and it's interesting that it is painting in the top three. Because it really is this sort of getting to the sense of embodiment through this deep engagement with this thousand year old material.
1: Right. Who else was on your list?
0: I was, I could talk about that for hours. That was wonderful. So, like, my number two is a book by Lynn Tillman that came out this year, and it's called Mother Care on Obligation, Love, Death, and Ambivalence. Mm. Lynn's mom uh, passed away after a very, very, very long illness. And she and her sisters took care of her. her And Lynn wrote this book that is really sort of an unsentimental look at the end of her mother's life and how her sisters took care of her. You know, Lynn is a great writer. She doesn't need me to tell you that. But it's one of those things, Helen, where you know somebody and then they like sort of, they sort of just reveal this this incredibly painful thing to you. And you're sort of embarrassed with the knowledge, but you're so grateful that they told you. Right? Right. She talks about the devastation of losing her mother and the ambivalence she has about taking care of her. And she doesn't paint anyone in the best light. It's one of the harshest, books i've ever read about taking care of a parent Mm. Um, it's a cautionary tale and um, there's no heroes in it and it's beautifully written Um, i could not put it down and i think you know for someone like who has such a keen sense of observation it's one thing to turn that sense of observation outward right that's sort of what we expect she turns it on herself and her own feelings about her mother, while she's taking care of her. And you know, I learned something that you know, not everybody's. um, I'm a, I'm a boy, and I have a boy's relationship with my mom, which mm. is very different than a girl having her relationship with her mom. Which I I learned so much about in reading this book. It's real. I I can't. I couldn't put it down, Helen. I um, I picked it up and um, uh, I canceled everything I was doing for the rest of the day so I could finish it. It's really fantastic.
1: Oh, it sounds fantastic. I think there's something, you know, about the personal being political and a certain kind of unflinching ability to implicate oneself in one's own story, not narcissistically, but to to see oneself and the role one is playing that strikes me as feminist. And that leads me to another favorite of mine which is i just have to give mira shore's instagram account oh that's great
0: that's really great
1: because um what i see her doing and i'm talking really about her corrections her sometimes daily sometimes weekly corrections of the headlines of the new york times in which she rewrites the headlines to uh be, shall we say, more specifically pointed right. about the problem, And they're done in this really and
0: aggressive, um, painterly style. Aggressive. They're beautiful. They're yeah. really beautiful.
1: Yes. And there's almost something about the way you were talking about Lynn Tillman's ambivalent relationship to the maternal. Right. Right. Which I think structures women in a very profound way. And Mira's attacking of the newspaper as a kind of patriarchal edifice that she's constantly rewriting. And I think Mira's work, both as a writer and uh, an artist, is still under undersung a little bit, which is why I'm happy to um, give her the shout-out. Who else for you?
0: In terms of um, art exhibitions, I want to give a shout-out to my old stomping ground and your old stomping ground, the ICA Boston, and um, Ruth uh, Erickson's uh, figure show, uh, Place for Us. Mm -hmm. which was really a beautiful um it was a beautiful investigation of contemporary portraiture without the market-driven sense of identity right um you know Basel is this week and down in miami and you and i are both not there (laughs) but there's a there has there was a up until recently there was a rash of really really sort of um I want to say easy figure painting.
1: Yes. that's probably. There's been a lot of easy figure that's painting. That's
0: probably the best way to put it. But in this show, she brought together these incredible painters and like showed how rich a territory figurative painting is right now. And um, you know, you don't usually get to see that many of of those kinds of paintings in the same place because you know, like like figurative painting, like, how do you even do a show like that? Like that, that's not a theme, you know what I mean? That's not really um, the figure, you know, or the body, which is the sort of way that people are talking about contemporary figuration right now. But in that show, there was such a powerful mix of, um, images and image making and ways of making images from the sort of, uh, you know, tight and um focused sort of image making of someone like david antonio cruz that has like a mystical almost magical sorts of transformation of the where like one of the lens will be like cerulean blue or something mm. to and with, which sort of conveys a sense of majesty or uh, or unpredictability on the figures just someone like doran langberg who has this incredibly delicious highly textured incredible paintings of you know sort of queer and gay and lesbian intimacy and and to aubrey leventhal that has this sort of almost hermetic set of space in her paintings and showing how much you can do with so little in terms of color and gesture it was such Mm -hmm. a beautiful range work from so many different types of artists that it didn't have the sort of oh, this is about identity. So the thing right. grafted on it. It was like, look at these incredible stories that we're finally paying attention to. Look at these incredible moments that people are now poised to be able to experience as part of our understanding of the human condition. And, you know, I think about, um, what's your name, uh, Arc Manorail Niles, those sort of incredible paintings that, Sort of liquor with a sense of mm. internal fire, and then you realize, oh my god, that's glitter. You have to paint someone's face as if it's full of stars or something. It was incredible. It was just such an incredible show, and they had like so many highs and so many lows in terms of like the emotional tenor of the work. That sometimes you were outdoors, and sometimes you were indoors, and sometimes you were among friends, like in a Louis Vuitton p- painting, and then sometimes you're like in this whole other sort of landscape that you're being welcomed into by people that you would never encounter in your day-to-day life because you're so separated from um from 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 your fellow humans. I'm thinking about like um oh what's her uh Cecilia McDaniel, like the sort of mm-hmm. beautiful paintings of these women sitting waiting for you to arrive in this beautiful landscape, which is not like anything I've ever seen before. And like I feel right. like so I feel so lucky to know that such a world exists. You know what I mean? Like, I never would have been looking for it. But, you know, Harrison, they put all those paintings together.
1: I want to put down, and I, th- I wonder, I think you might join me on this one. I want to just, I want to talk about Colleen Smith.
0: Oh, my heart. Oh, my heart.
1: Oh, and I want to talk about whether or not Colleen Smith is going to be like the Joan Jonas of our generation. Like, do we really have to wait until she's 80 before we give her all the flowers she deserves before someone can come up with a unified theory of Colleen Smith before we all stop pretending that this huge brain capable of linking Alice Coltrane um, quilting Uh, heraldic banners from the 16th and 17th century and the geological activity of our own earth. Like this is what this woman is, you know, the constellation she's thrown up into the air to make, you know, just some of the most oblique, funny, disturbing, radical work being made out there right now.
0: I think that Colleen is an artist who is not opposed to collaboration, but she is opposed to compromise. Mm-hmm. And there's something very urgent in her work. Um, you know Colleen used to live in my building uh in oh, I did Gere, not know Yeah. That. We've been friends for a long time. And um when I first met her, I, she showed me this film that was like an homage to Malik Sidabay called I Want to See My Skirt. And um I don't know. Oh, it. it's fantastic. And like and then mm-hmm. um she also uh had worked on a film um in the shadow of katrina which has been a kind of a science fiction film and um I have always been shocked at the level of invention at risk in her work and um she has never hit a false note in her work even when she's sort of addressing quote unquote big issues Like uh, mass incarceration or violence against women, it never seems it never seems to posit itself as a solution. Um, It really is this sort of deep engagement with beauty and truth and time. And um, I have loved her work from the beginning. I I I think that people are sleeping on her because it's not it's not entertaining
1: oh yes
0: and the so her sort of refusal even when she does something entertaining like she recently she showed me a um a piece where she had a high school band play a sun rock composition in chinatown in chicago so sort of like almost like this sort of this sort of band of young people shows up and makes this right. incredible like sort of moment it it's past time for her to get her to it really is yeah. because she has influenced so many people and um i i even love the whitney show where she um the portraits of the books portraits of the mm-hmm. books that people are reading so she this sort of idea of moving in around and through visual visual culture and understanding symbolism in such a deep discreet and um effective way i think that she is really firing on all cylinders right now and um you're right she really does deserve um her flowers but i think here's more
1: than her flowers maybe just a really smart retrospective
0: i think that here's the hard thing about colleen i think that she she could have done the other thing you know what i mean she could have gone and directed like a Hollywood feature film or something. Maybe they'll hire her mm-hmm. to direct the next X-Men movie or something like that. It'd be kind of amazing. Well, I, I don't know if that's, I don't know what success will look like for her. Um, I would love for her to have more recognition and for more eyes to be on the work.
1: Well, I think your sense earlier of that she doesn't compromise, you know, that she'll collaborate, but that she won't compromise. One of the things I feel when I'm in a Colleen Smith show and this year, I was in one at LACMA um, and one at uh, Moran Moran Gallery in L.A. has a show of her work up now. And I feel the same thing every time I see a Colleen Smith show, which is here is someone who still believes in the old version of art. Right. Not right. Not not actually art as entertainment, not art as spectacle, not art as um, the sort of working through of a thematic, but rather art as an investigative practice that allows the artist to understand in the fullest possible way that she can the contours of her own mind as they exist on the planet Earth in the 21st century under the conditions we currently occupy, which is why I'm always so turned on by the fact that she's showing us crystals and volcanoes. And like, you know, there's this literal quality to Colleen. She's like, you can dream all you want, except we are all stuck here on this rock that is hurtling through space. And until we deal with some of the just the tangible realities of life, we are not going to be able to get our shit together. You know. Um, Like it's always a call to get your shit together, like the banners with an acknowledgement about it's not only going to be just hard, it's going to be like a kind of continually iterative process of failing to do so under the necessity that we must do so. We
0: might all have to do this by wandering through the desert, listening to a boombox with the voices of our ancestors instructing us about culture. That's, yeah. that's, that's what she posits in one of her films, that that's, maybe that's the way we have to do it, you know, and the notion that she is a, someone who is not talking about invoking the ancestors in her work, right? Don't need to invoke them if they're always present. Yeah. And there's something there really go. lovely about that. Like, it's not a performative sort of a magical sort of thing, that she like, no, this is, this is with me all the time. Sunrise right. not the past, like sunrise right now, right now.
1: Sunrise right yeah. now, yeah. I want to just give um Tecilia Amani uh, a really big salute for Milk of Dreams, which was her Venice Biennale. Mm. You know, I underestimated Tecilia. Tell me why. I didn't. Can you tell me why? Well. I'd never seen her do a big show. I'd seen mostly what I understood of her work was to be her work on the High Line, which has been wildly successful. She's clearly understands sculpture. She clearly understands scale because she can put sculpture in an outdoor space. And they're often like, even the ones I didn't quote unquote like were really effective. Um, And she also seems to understand something that, that art is for a public, right? Like she addresses a public with her, public art program. And so I've been very impressed with her in that way. But I didn't really know that she had the capacity to produce an epic exhibition of more square footage than I could even comprehend, both the Italian Pavilion and the Arsenale, um, that could thread together the historical contributions of women, artists, and present contributions that could cluster things around shared ideas rather than just visual similarity Mm -hmm. um, or theme, Um, and that she could do so, that she could basically make almost an all-woman show, um, and women, uh, meaning all the different types of women that there are, cis, trans, femme identifying, I'm using the word in its largest and and truest capacity, that she could make a show of almost all women in which I never once missed an a, a, a note of otherness, you know, like I never thought like, oh, it'd be great if X or Y dude was in this. Oh, room. Wow. Do you know oh, what I yeah. mean? Like yeah, it yeah, yeah. Didn't, it, I never felt like it was willful, right? Mm-hmm. Like that there was a willful like, you know what? We're just not going to show any guys because the situation is so toxic. We're But she actually, there was a whole world, a whole set of cosmologies in which women were doing this work and that she was tying it to a historical antecedent and all of it, she managed to not only tie it to a historical antecedent, but all the work also gestured in some way to a kind of futurity. Mm. Like that if we could maybe imagine things this way, if we could root ourselves in the past this way against the backdrop of women's cultural production. And I found the show really, really riveting. And I didn't, I didn't know if she could pull it off. And she did. And I was just enthralled by it and really happy for her. And for the life of me, I do not understand why she was not like basically immediately offered a major museum post in at some institution in America, so that that kind of show could be on view at our, uh, at a, in our largest museums. I
0: Read all of the coverage of it of Sassy Balloon, and there have been very few spiteful pieces about that show. Because usually after that show, there's yep. all sorts of nasty invective comes out, but, and I don't think it's because of her gender. I think it was really about the quality of the show i think that people were he shocked made a great show it was so good yeah i wish i had gotten a seat she made a great
1: show all right mr Locke. i hope uh, i hope you have a great rest of um your day your weekend i love you my
0: dear i will talk to you soon i love you too all
1: right. hey there it's helen again i hope you enjoyed our rundown of the best of 2022 Before we go, I want to just share one little extra thing with you. We didn't actually plan this for release. It's something of a pilot for the episodes you've been hearing on the feed lately. I realized after we recorded The Best of 2022, I really couldn't leave out this discussion of one of my very favorite, most soul-reviving moments of the year, Beyonce's album, Renaissance. Here's me and Steve chopping it up about Queen Bee's Best Album in Years. I hope you enjoy it. Well, hello, Helen
0: Molesworth.
1: Hey, Steve Locke. How are you?
0: I'm good, my dear. How are you? I miss you terribly, you know.
1: I know I miss you too, but I see that you're in your new fancy studio, and so that makes me happy.
0: Yes, I'm in my new uh, studio, which now people know where I am. I kept it secret for a long time. I was hiding in upstate New York, but now people know where I am, so
1: when i asked you if you wanted to like have a little kibitz with me a little a little art world chit chat with me on mm-hmm. the guest your first thing was like oh we'll talk about the beyonce album yeah and you know i'm just gonna come right out and say so when the single dropped mm-hmm. i really wanted to be a hater i was yeah. holding on to some old avant-garde stuff about like how How dare you appropriate all this stuff from the ballroom? How dare you appropriate my 90s, 80s, 90s club life? Um, And then I wanted to be all like angry at Beyonce. Yeah. Then I kept playing the song and I was like, I don't know why I want to be angry at Beyonce, but I can't be angry at Beyonce about this song. Then the album dropped and I couldn't turn it off. It's got 18 earworms in it, but really... More than that, it does feel a bit like uh, a disco manifesto. Yeah. And because it was the first thing you offered up is wanting to talk about, I want to know why, and I want to know where where it is in your queue in terms of listening right now.
0: Well, you know, I, I listen to it all the time, so that's been like my diet. I have to say, I was never really a big Beyonce fan until the record Beyonce. That was when I... I got on the bandwagon because that record to me was so progressive and so individual. Mm -hmm. Like I, I I hadn't heard anything like it. Mm -hmm. You know, it it was sort of like, you're listening to a record that was, um, that all these other things had happened in the world. And then suddenly this thing from another planet arrived. Right. And that's when I started thinking about Beyonce is more than just like a pop singer. Like I thought of her as like a real artist, right? Right. Someone like like uh, like Gaga or like um or like uh like Prince, who could like make a whole concept of a record and all the songs related and all that sort of stuff, right? So that was the first uh, time. And then you know, Homecoming, which was you know, sitting in front of my television, crying,
1: mm. seeing. Why were, crying? Um, <laughs> Why were you crying when you watched Homecoming? You,
0: you know what it is, Helen. There's a way that Beyonce went to Coachella and was authentically black yeah, in a way that was like, I don't care if you people know what this is about. Like, I don't give a fuck if you get any of the references or understand what stepping is, or I don't, I don't really couldn't care less. Right. Right. Um, and that was the thing was that like, cause it showed that, you know, this is the thing that I love the most about black people. Like they say that black people have no culture, right? Like black people, in America, like stripped from their culture, their language, their religion, their families, and they end up here and they create an entirely new culture that is definitively American and really transforms the world. And that's what I, I love about, um, black people mostly, but you know, and Beyonce in particular, this record, um, and I say record because I'm an old head. You I know. know I, mean? like... I still say record. <laughs> um, this record is a plague record, and that's that's what moved me. Uh, it was like listening to the Velvet Rope uh, back in the day, and hearing like you know being in the club and so many people were dead, and hearing Janet Jackson do that house version, you know, together again, right. you know, where you what does she Janet says at the beginning of the record? Uh, you don't have to let go of the you don't have to let go of the pain to let go of the memory or something like that. Right. Right. You know, a million people are dead, Helen, a million Americans are dead and and lots of black people are dead and we've been cooped up and targeted by these horrible sorts of policies that have come out of this sort of fascist moment. Right. And, um, that, that, that anthemic nature of break my soul is so much more than a dance record. It's so much more than that girl. I'm a lifelong academic. I got other academics calling me up saying like, you won't break my soul. Like you like working at a college and (laughs) like you're feeling it. Right. And that that's the thing. She's done that thing that, uh, that Marvin Gaye did that, um, that Nina Simone did where she made a record that was for people. People felt like, I feel like she made that record for me. Right. And that that's that's the thing about it. And you know, people it's so funny. People get so mad at appropriation and and this and that and the other thing. And I just think, you know, I it's all appropriated. It's all of it. All of it. You don't have culture in this country without black people. So it all belongs to us. And
1: we know from exactly the moment in a way that this that the that the things she's appropriating come out of this seventies, eighties, nineties moment. That is the the flourishing of postmodernism in which we all start to talk about that there is no new, there is only a kind of reshuffling. And the the identity of the DJ actually takes on a kind of historical role for us because the DJ is someone who doesn't need instruments and is always playing with something that somebody else did in order to create a collective Identity, right?
0: You remember that you remember in the eighties going to the parties at like the Ukrainian Hall in New York, right? And the DJ would be spinning something, and then all of a sudden he would spin like a Jackson Five record, yes, like in the middle of everything, and it was like this, like people would lose their minds because he was communicating something really, really specific. So he he would be playing something, and then he would play like ABC or something, and people would lose their minds, and then he would just start yelling, you know, organize, organize, <laughs> because it was about like right. getting people to vote and getting people to like activate it in the sort of moment when this, um, where people were advocating for their own well-being, right?
1: Absolutely. And that was also the moment, um, when, when the DJ would play, set it off, you know, y'all Yo, right. this party started, right? Yeah. Nobody thought it was about the party. no. <laughs> you know,
0: no. Right? no. We
1: all were dancing knowing like, oh, the roof is on fire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not a
0: metaphor at this point. It wasn't a metaphor. It
1: was a kind of continuation of uh, what a lot of people we knew were doing on the streets, you know, in terms of um, abortion, you know, free access to abortion protests at that time. A lot of people Mm -hmm. I knew were doing clinic defense. Everybody I knew was involved in ACT UP in some way or another, you know, everybody Mm -hmm. Certainly, going to those protests. If you were right. in New York, that you were going to those protests, and then you went to the club afterwards.
0: Right, exactly. And um, the the, the, the sort of comedy of it, yeah. And I say comedy, like a uh, theatrical sort mm-hmm. of thing there, where there's sort of presentation in the club, where you're in the the booty shorts, the the uh, combat boots the backwards cap, the skin tie t-shirt that became like a uniform. Right. And like, we're sort of appropriating skinhead culture and appropriating like, you know, a muscle, muscle head culture. Right. Right? And it was coming together in the clubs and it was also coming together in the street. Cause you wore the, we cut our hair cause like so the cops couldn't pull our hair when they arrested us. Right. Like we did all that sort of stuff. And so I think that that, it just brings me back to that moment and the beats and all that sort of stuff. And like, You know, it's interesting that both Jay Z and Beyonce and Kendrick actually in their um, most recent work have acknowledged queer people in their families in this really loving and expansive way. And it goes back to that thing I said to you years ago that like black people don't hate gay people. Black people just don't like white people. And it's really, it's white privilege. It's not being gay. There's gay people in our families, right? you know, and for them to acknowledge it in such a loving way. And for that record. You know, I really do think that Renaissance is about, it's a plague record. It's about dancing after, in the aftermath. Like we're, it's over now. Like every, we've, let's, let's mourn who we lost, but let's not forget to live. Let's not forget to live. Yeah.
1: The other thing I think about it, it reminds me of something that um, AJ, Arthur Jaffa says, uh, he said about, the work he makes that he makes it for a black audience. He's totally fine for white people to listen, to participate, to see, you know, like that's not the issue. It's the, it's made though, with a set of references and identities in play that assumes an audience with incredible competency in and, and what he is making is legible for a certain audience with a certain kind of competency. That's true of all artists. And I right. think fiance has done that in this album. I think it's like kind of weirdly made to thread some generational folks together because she knows that the beehive is gonna be with her. Like she knows right, right, right. people will track down every reference. They, you know, those, she has fans. But Mm -hmm. I think he's also, like, throwing down some tracks from the old days, knowing that younger people will start digging them up and figuring out, you know, what the various dance halls were, what ball culture was, what house music was, what its relationship to gay culture was. Right. And I really had this moment where I felt, um... I felt like, uh what it's like when you're invited to a great party and you Mm -hmm. in exchange for being invited to a great party, bring your best guest, you know, like bring your Mm -hmm. best self as a guest, like ready to listen, ready to dance, ready to parlay, ready to engage. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I, I hadn't expected to feel that way from like a major pop album. You know, well, I just didn't think that that was going to be the space I was going to be in. When I finally laid down all my old avant-gardist, boring bullshit, and just danced.
0: I don't think. I don't think. First of all, I, I think you're being too hard on yourself about your avant-gardist bullshit because I think that we we live in a moment where spectacle is so seductive and so right. um, so dangerous that we have to be critical of it. We have right. to, we have to be critical of our pleasure. Our pleasure isn't neutral. Right. And so when I think about that kind of moment where you're like, it, it, it's like, there's a reason why people don't want to dance to R Kelly anymore because they're, they're, they're critical of their pleasure. Right. And not in a way that means that, uh, people, um, can't engage with works by problematic creators. Right. But you just have to be critical of your pleasure. Right. And I, I'm critical of my pleasure when it comes to that kind of music. I'm critical of anybody who uses the sort of structures of mourning and uh the loss during the AIDS epidemic as a way of entertainment. Right. And there's some things in the in the packaging along with the record, like the the super glossy photographs of her that uh call to mind Fra- uh, Francisco Scavulo mm-hmm. and the um and Stephen Mizel and those sort of eighties photographers, the sort of mm-hmm. fetish finish. So it's like it, it's a moment. She's evoking a moment, you know, but I do really sincerely believe that it's because that moment was so much about pleasure and so much about, um, um, euphoria, like escape, you know? And, um, I, I, I I think we need that right now, but I also think that, you know, the, the record keeps coming back to things like uh, break my soul and uh, carrying derringers because those carrots have turned into terrorists like she's she's keeping right. it real and this is the other thing I'll say about it she's become a much better singer
1: oh my
0: god the vocals feel, are incredible on this record you know I, it's, like
1: what it, I mean you think it's a plague album and I 100% agree but I also had this moment precisely around her vocal capacities at ooh. this juncture Where I was like, oh, the pandemic has been very, very good for real artists. This girl, goddamn. Like, like, I've watched painters paint some of the best paintings of their lives. I have watched all these artists that I really love and admire. What happened if they didn't have two years of parties to go to? What Mm -hmm. happened if they didn't have two years of book openings and launches and going to
0: Basel and all that stuff? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. You didn't have
1: to do that. And I feel like, Beyonce clearly went into the studio and was working her scales like she growls bones. She she feels like molasses and honey combined. I don't when know what
0: she is singing. Um, um, plastic on the sofa, right?
1: Plast, and it's plastic off the sofa. We have to off talk the about it, but go for it.
0: Yeah, but you know, um, there's this thing she does where she has all this air around her vocals, yes. right? And it's just, I've never heard her do that before. And it's, it's magnificent. It is just magnificent. And I think that, you know, first of all, this is like the second record that she's made that talks about how great it is to fuck Jay-Z. So like, not, I want to fuck Jay-Z. Like, seriously, I, I that shit's amazing. Like, I'm telling you, like the way she's singing about him, I'm like, oh my God, girl, you in love. Yeah. I know. We should I all love- find a love like that. But good Lord. I- yeah.
1: You know, I was in the car uh, listening to plastic off the sofa and I started to to weep like a baby because of mm-hmm. my love, you know? And when I also right. think that that is something that she's so canny about. Like, those two people are having, clearly they have a private life. Clearly they tend to yeah. their privacy extremely well. well. Yeah, You know, they're no Kardashians, you know? Right, what right. I mean? And... They're both artists. So the reality of their love and their struggle is in their work. Right. But in this way that makes you feel like I'm sure Plastic Off the Sofa is going to be like everybody's wedding song from now till the end of time. Yeah. You know first what dance I mean? Like, and all
0: that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's it's yeah. A, it's I've and that in and, uh, Virgo's groove, which is like my favorite uh, song on the on the on the record right now that I keep listening to over and over again. But like that kind of um, 70s uh, bar in the basement, suburban life of um, a lot of uh, Black people where everyone is, um, you know, everyone's in the house, the kids are upstairs asleep. your parents are downstairs partying, and you're laying in bed and you can hear like the soul music from the basement, right? It's that she evokes that so well. There was something about those kinds of structures about a certain kind of comfort among, um, black families where the music is for adults, but the children listen to it. Like I know every word of, uh, what's going on from Marvin Gaye, that is not a child's record, right? but I, I was immersed in it as a child and I feel the same way about Renaissance. I feel like people are listening to that record and it's going to make such an impression That music is going to make such an impression on young people, the way that the music of my time made the same impression on me. It's the music that is the music of activism. Right. It's, it's, it's the music, like we're going to go out and we're going to fight and then we're going to come to the club and we're going to take care of each other. and We're going to dance and then we're going to get up and we're going to do it again tomorrow. So it's not, it's not just hedonism. It's, it's respite. It's such a, it's, it's and a it's beautiful Emma, thing. And it's
1: Emma Goldman. It's like politics yeah. can't also be, can't, There can't only be a politics of demand. There has to be a politics of desire and I'm right. not going to be a part of any revolution
0: that I can't dance to. That's it. Amen to that.
1: Steve, thank you for picking up the phone for me, baby. I love you so much.
0: I love you too, Helen. <laughs> I'll see you later. Dialogues is produced by David Zwarner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you join us again next time.